what can you actually control? Some people think they can control the outcome, but you can't. Mm-hmm. You could run, and, and most athletes listening, or most, well, anyone listen, have you ever had an unbelievable performance and lost? Have you ever performed poorly and still won? It's happened because we've got no control over the other people, the outcome that's going on with it. So you can't control the outcome. You can influence it. You can't control it. Today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Phil Clark about tackling mental health in sport. Dr. Clark is an experienced lecturer and researcher and consultant in sport and exercise and performance psychology at the University of Derby, which is where he completed his own PhD exploring the role of psychological predictors in pressure performance. Phil's really got a passion for human performance and well-being and mental health and supporting individuals to really be able to achieve their potential, whether that's in the classroom, the boardroom or on the sporting field. Alongside his lecturing role, Phil is the current sports psychology lead, both at Team Derby and the Derbyshire Institute for Sport, where he supports a range of elite athletes and coaches in their sporting ventures. He also applies these principles in other environments as well. He researches and provides a consultancy in a range of other performing domains, such as education, business, aviation and military scenarios. Phil has presented his award-winning research, both nationally and internationally, at a range of conferences over the last decade, And he believes it's really important to ensure he continues to work over all of these areas to really be able to drive this through the discipline and also ensure that his practice is scientifically informed with the latest research. And that that thinking is able to support his clients, but also to shape the performance environments. So, Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Joe. I'll uh, I'll have you uh, introduce me at uh, any other thing I do in the future. That was great. (laughs) Thanks for that. You're very welcome. (laughs) So, Phil, where did this all start for you? I guess before I got into, I wasn't very academic at all growing up. If you had asked my teachers if Phil Clark would have made it to university, their answers would have definitely been no. Um, It was, it it stemmed from just a passion in sport. My, growing up, my dad was was a a well-known athlete as well. Gaelic football, he was well-respected. I got into it myself, uh, my sister and my brother. But I struggled, not due to ability, due to I couldn't get up here right. I couldn't get the, the top three inches, as I call it, right. So big, big matches. I, I felt the expectation of trying to live in my dad's shadow, trying to, to emulate him or be. And he was a very different athlete to what I was. So I, in big moments, I just I didn't necessarily turn up to the way I would have liked to. And it wasn't until I got hit with the realisation, right, I'm going to university, that I wanted to study in sport and I remember my very first lecture uh, in sports psychology where I was like oh wow this is a thing okay yeah and everything in my first module was just yeah I could have used that I could have used that I could have used that and that's what I'm really passionate now about supporting young athletes with it because it is it is uncomfortable it is challenging it is pressure filled especially when you're going through everything that life brings so yeah, just have a, have a real passion for supporting athletes in something that I went through and, and didn't necessarily have that support. Yes, I had support from family and friends and things like yeah. that, but not from a from true psych- psychological lens, I guess. Absolutely. I love that phrase, the top three inches. That's a new one on me, but I think I'm going to steal it. <laughs> so, so the, the, you know, for, I can see Phil as well, whilst we're talking. So he was, he was pointing to the, to the top of his head and referring to 
the executive functioning um, of, of his brain there. Yeah. And, and so, you know, really that understanding that would have been so helpful to you earlier on in your career of why certain things happened in a certain way really started to dawn on you when you, you moved into higher education. Oh, complete career change. So I had initially come over to study sports science. Like, like I mentioned, I wasn't great at school and wasn't great at university. The only reason I got into university in the UK, so you can probably tell from my accent, uh, I'm from Ireland was because of my sporting credentials and my background. I got mm-hmm. into a sports science course because purely you could you could write a personal statement in Ireland that you get a number, you get points for your grade, and that's it, whether you get in or not. So I knew I wasn't going to get into the courses I wanted to in, in Ireland. So I came over to the UK to study sports science, thinking I was going to do physiology or physiotherapy. Mm-hmm. And first lecture, first, first semester of uni, I changed my whole career career path that I knew it was psychology I wanted to go down so yeah I think in any profession you do you want to find something you're passionate about and I had that personal experience that I could connect with and go not only is this something I enjoy from a professional perspective it's just something I wish I knew I knew back then Absolutely. yeah yeah and I think you know I mean the, there are lots of different figures out there but something that I'd read recently was that it's reported about 35 percent of elite athletes actually suffered from disordered eating behaviors burnout anxiety stress depression I'd have thought actually there's probably a lot more than that and I think that that's possibly quite an underreported yeah yeah I I think that from from a mental health aspect I think athletes can sometimes be seen from the general population so the way the way I look at sport is it's like the shop window of high performance because everyone can see it mm-hmm. everyone talks about it if you think about kind of at a professional level, you'll have 70, 80,000 go to a stadium and they all talk about it in the pub afterwards and it's on on social media and it's it's all that's talked about. And they have this image that they're they're invincible, but they're, they're human beings. They're, yeah. They have the same pressures that everyone else experiences, except their profession is under the lens of scrutiny from press, fans, and the whole lot. I think where the aspect of the reporting of it is one thing, because I, I do think there's an aspect that people don't report Mm. Um, what they're experiencing but I also think some aspect of it is is understanding the difference between stress and pressure and pressure is a fundamental part of that role when there's any type of performance where there's an expectation there's an outcome and there's individuals watching there is that natural pressure so we don't want to shy away from that so I know in the general population when we talk about uh, negative feelings it's about trying to manage those and, and and get to a more pleasant place but when we look at sport, that pressure is inevitable. It's going to come and it's it's more about managing it and getting on side with it and understanding why our body is going through what it's going through in terms of the intense butterflies, the uh, the, the self-doubt, the apprehension. That's that's a natural part of your body trying to keep you safe, your brain trying to keep you safe, but going, let's not go into this really scary environment. So what we're not trying to do is get rid of it. We're just trying to work with it and that, that type of approach. And I guess, you know, we talk about that in in education as well, don't we? We, you know, from from the work that Gareth and I've done, we talk about the difference between stretch and stress, and you know the the importance of that that those intense butterflies, etc. And it's preparing you to go into this arena, but it's also there because it shows that you actually care about oh. what you're doing and, and being able to work in that. And when we worked with different programs in in the university, we we talk about it in different language, but you know, in performing arts, we talk about that motivational energy. When we were looking at people who um, had had academic anxiety as well, we talk about being able to recognise 
the difference and being able to work with that initial pressure, if you like, mm. which is there that you can use to help you drive to, you know, drive you forward to succeed. But when that tips over in into stress, then that becomes a different thing. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, 100%. And, you know, that that is we're trying to find the balance and mm. it's, it's understand that everyone has a certain capacity for those experiences where it becomes helpful. I try not to use like it's positive or negative. It's whether it's helpful or unhelpful. And you notice when it un- when it tips over the other side, it becomes unhelpful. And that's when it becomes problematic. When I love the way you term it, and it's very similar when, when with pressure, the reason we experience pressure is because we have a level of importance to it, importance of the outcome, importance of the image, importance of whatever. So if you're not experiencing that, I'm probably more worried because does that mean have you, have you fallen out of love with what's happening and which which happens in sport where they have this identity so they're doing it just because that's all they've ever known and they've got no passion for it and that's even an even worse place to be in almost okay. so it's almost trying to educate people and, and particularly our, our younger athletes that this is natural that it's not something to be scared of yes it's uncomfortable but uncomfortable is okay it's when it becomes un, unmanageable that's when we need to to I guess take a different approach I guess the the challenging thing with with sport is sometimes those those failures that we can have and I, I use that word because I think we we shouldn't want to avoid it because failure is inevitable in every in every performance context we feel and we're human beings we're fallible like any other but those failures are very clear and open to everyone in a lot of others so anything that's got performative in front of others so the performing arts definitely there's an audience musicians there's an audience but if we think about it in the corporate world you might be in an office that no one will notice those mistakes apart from your manager that's not to say that we're diminishing the impact of it but the reason i talk about it is that's another element of the stress beforehand because it's not just me having to deal with what if this goes wrong it's my teammates the the fans the population watching the implications this could have on contracts because if i'm not performing well i could be out the door so it, it almost adds to that potential spiral and negative thinking of this could go wrong this could go wrong this could go wrong and okay are we, it's helpful if we're using it as a motivator but if we're using it as a detractor then that's unhelpful mm. and it's 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 that understanding it, it starts to impact on our, our perception of how well our needs are being met if we draw it back to the human given needs you know that sense of status you know that sense of autonomy and control as well and you know that you're talking about teammates part of that community of people as well and when I've talked before about performance anxiety in terms of people giving presentations when they're doing their vivas you know and in the corporate world if people are having to present um that's a, a really common thing as well and that you know the way I've framed it for people is that it, you, you remove yourself from the pack we're pack animals and we if we suddenly feel that we're outside of that pack then there's a, a, a huge sense of threat oh 100 and I love I think it's Jerry Seinfeld's joke that more people yeah. are afraid of public speaking than they are of, of, of death. So actually, you'd rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. And yeah, yeah. That, that highlights that the real importance of we are pack animals. We we yeah. don't want to do something that's going to potentially isolate us or, or put us out because that's our risk. Years and years ago, the reason was that is our physical safety. If we're left alone to fend for ourselves, we're at risk the eight hours we sleep we're at risk in terms of we have to fend for ourselves and foods all of that were our likelihood of death increases magnanimously but mm. actually in today's society it's a lot more safe physically but our brain doesn't process it like that because it looks at the the emotional connection and actually we follow the exact same processes that 
I don't want to do something or say something that's going to make me seem silly, make me seem stupid or me feel lesser. And therefore, I may be excluded from projects, excluded from teams, excluded from X, Y, Z. So again, we're, we're, these are natural human processes that are part of it. And everyone experiences the exact same, same things. And yeah, when, when we perceive it like that and when you start to understand it, you can get on side with why your brain does that. Mm. It's natural. It's completely mm. natural. And even though I, I've been doing this for, for years, I still get nervous when I go up and speak because of course I am. <laughs> but I can manage it and it's helpful now. It's almost like, oh, no, this, this is good. This is me telling me I'm ready. It's that's all it is. And yeah, it's just very different. Just very different. And I think that managing it is uh, that comes into, you know, when we from a human givers point of view, when we talk about resources, one of our great resources is our imagination. Yeah, and yeah. that's one of the things we see that, you know, in in all arenas, we can use really um, helpfully, but we it can also be quite unhelpful as well. And I imagine uh, that in sport as well I know the work that we we did some work together didn't we over yeah. over lockdown actually with in the world of aviation and we talked a lot about the imagination that pilots when they were experiencing in their imagination certain things going wrong so they had certain competencies that they had to achieve before they could get back up in the air and they they had to do some armchair flying and then they had to do the sim test and what was going on for them and in their imagination had a huge influence on the outcome of their performance and, and you, I'm sure you see that in sport, we see that in, in academia, but we also see it socially for people as well, don't we, in, in their everyday lives. So if we're constantly concerned about the worst case scenario or imagining certain things going wrong, then our emotional arousal levels, our, our fight or flight, that perception of threat goes up. And the, the one thing I say even with that is we don't want to shy away from that either, because there, there is benefit in seeing the worst case scenario mm-hmm. in the sense that, okay, you've seen it what it could be at the worst and you're still here and you're okay yeah like it's it's not the end of the world so there is an element that you'll see within some aspects where it's all about being purely positive and and, and I, I do see this with some of the un let's say unqualified people in the in the mental space talking about performance who will be saying no just stay positive stay in this and I'm like I understand that and there, there is benefit to it but we also understand that Sport and performance is an unsafe place because there is validation, there is expectation, there is all of that. So if we just imagine purely the positive, it it doesn't replicate what it's like in the reality when you're in there because you are going to be sitting with those doubts. So a lot of the work I try and do is trying to almost make it real like, okay, so you're experiencing those thoughts, that's okay. Now, how are we going to manage it? Because I can't stop those automatic thoughts, those automatic images coming into play. So let's give you the skills that when they do come in, how are you going to manage it? Yeah. So it's almost trying to get them to, instead of lean away from it, lean into it and still know that they're on a strong foundation. Because that's, in in, in essence, what what reality is going to be like. I, I don't think I've ever turned up to any performance and gone... I am perfect. I feel 10 out of 10. <laughs> My performance outcome is going to be perfect. No one can stop me because the thing is, I've, I've had situations where it's gone wrong before. So my brain will go, ha ha, yeah, you think? Yeah. Do you remember when this happened? It's like, yeah, okay. So it's, it's, it's okay as long as we can get safety with it. And the way I try and explain it with our athletes, and I know it's difficult because it's, it's on screen, but it almost like a, we're button heads with that negativity and almost trying to avoid it. When actually let's get on side with it, use it from a learning way to go, yeah, that's natural. That could happen. Yeah. If if it does see out that way, it's not the end of the world, I'm safe. But if I am, if I do find myself in that moment, what can I do to work with it? 
what are the strategies I can use in the moment? Let's practice them. Yeah. But but again, that's harnessing the use of the imagination. It's it's imagining, you know, being able to overcome those obstacles. And one of the things we talk about is, is you know, uh, guided imagery, mental yeah. rehearsal, things like that. But also rehearsing for tricky situations, rehearsing for what, what happens if, if this happens. And so that their, their brains had an experience of thinking about that and thinking about how they might overcome that. Um, if that that problem does arise, because I think you're right, if we just go along the lines of just rehearsing the positive, then that's not always helpful in every every scenario. In in some cases, we do need to think about. I know when I was doing work with with students who were concerned about assignments or exams, and it was the total end of the world if yeah. they didn't pass, we'd think about okay, so if that happened, then what? Yeah, that would be the the narrative, the, the discussion that we'd have is so. If you do fail this exam, what does that mean for you? Do you get to retake it? Okay, you know, if if that goes wrong, do you have the option of you know re, revisiting it next year, and go just going further and further down? So that we're making that scenario smaller um, yeah. and um, you know less less pervasive than it might otherwise have seen initially to them. And what, what we know the the research when it comes to imagery, like I'm a huge factor of using that imagination for it because you can recreate the scenario effectively in your mind and we know the evidence suggests that even in in injury rehabilitation you can actually recover quicker by effectively using imagery because your brain responds and the body responds in a way that you're almost getting used to those neurons firing in terms of what that physical response will be to the point that some athletes who've been injured and lead up to olympics and all they can do is imagery that recovery bounce back is quicker off the back of it because they're keeping those lines of thinking, those kind of, when I think this, this type of reaction and response, it, it helps. And for anyone who doesn't believe that, uh, that that is the case, if you've ever had a nightmare where you feel like you're falling, why is it you wake up and your body's tense? Because your body feels that actually this is a reality. You've created yeah. a really powerful, strong image that evokes the physiological responses. You're sweating, you're tense, you feel tired because it's almost like you've been running. That's yeah. not real. You've created that powerful image and that powerful image has created a physiological response in you. So mm. if you're able to use that in a positive way, you can do the exact same. Yeah. It's really That's powerful. Fascinating. I know when we, again, it was the when we did a bit of work over lockdown, we were talking about mental rehearsal and about rehearsing success. And I remember you said that there was a study about runners and they they kept they they were imagining running the race but they kept seeing themselves being beaten somebody somebody running past them yeah yeah so there's there's lots of like so that i think was a case study okay scenario where you can see that and that 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 is common that's common when you're in those moments you can think of worst case scenario and it can lead to that same response that when it does happen even if it's never happened before, but you've created it in your mind, it can still create that, oh, it's happening again, even though it's the first time. Because yeah. again, the images we create are so powerful and so create, even to the point that, do you know when people, how we make sense of scenarios, even if it didn't happen, but how you've made it up in your head that it's happened as a way of explaining it, that becomes that reality. So then the images almost seem like almost factual and therefore have greater, greater power behind it. So when you're recalling them, you, you're imagining all the worst case scenarios because you're looking back at it from the emotional lens of maybe fear or anxiety or stress. So again, those images that we can create in our mind play a huge part in 
how we deal with future or present situ situations in terms of, again, let's try and create not comfortable scenarios, yeah, but helpful scenarios. So can you find your comfort in the discomfort? Right. When there's fire around here, what's your fire exit plan? Can you imagine what that's going to be? Well, you know, there's, there's, there's feelings of comfort. When you know that things around you aren't going as you plan, can you still see yourself making the right actions that are going to help you towards the goal you're trying to achieve? Okay. And it's, it's trying to look on that. Is that why it's so important then not to rehearse having already achieved something? It, it depends what it's for. Okay. So I, I think if you're doing it for purely motivational purposes, mm -hmm. so for example, if you've got a five o'clock training session and you're lying in bed, you focusing on the negative and the challenge might not be the most useful thing in the world. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to roll over and half asleep anyway. So it's, it's, it's almost like it's a depends approach of the when and what of why you're using it. So there is a level of complexity to it that it's not just the same image every time because it will lose its impact. It's knowing when and what and how behind it. So viewing the positive outcomes and say, for example, that feeling of you winning a competition, mm -hmm. you replay in that first thing in the morning before you get out of bed to go train that can be a really powerful motivational tool but actually what most of the images we've been talking about they're not motivational in any sense mm -hmm. so what we're almost trying to do is create an image that's given instruction and guidance yeah that allow them to almost have a coping mechanism that when it comes out okay great so for example it could be if you are focusing or worrying about the negative scenario that comes in that's proving unhelpful and leading you down a line it could be right your coping mechanism mechanism is for the next minute i just want you to focus on an ideal race outcome okay just focus on that so what we're almost trying to do is whenever something negative comes in you're building up that automation uh, that automatic habit of okay that's fine let's focus on what i can do an ideal race outcome and me performing through the adversity or even some case like imagine a perfect round I'm not saying every time you have to focus on the negative, but it's also good to do that sometimes too. So focus on it going best case scenario, focus on a worst case scenario, focusing when different variations go wrong, because by doing that, you're, you're developing comfort in it. So, so Michael Phelps is a great example. There, there's a video out there you can, you can watch in one of his Olympics. I think it was a semi-final where his goggles broke. So his goggles filled with water and it led obviously for a swimmer underwater that's not ideal particularly when you, you you're turning at the end of uh, end of laps but they had rehearsed that in practice so <laughs> okay. it didn't it didn't yes it was uncomfortable yes it was a shock he still i think he won the race and made it through but you can see at the end of it when he comes out he's rubbing his eyes he doesn't know kind of the outcome it doesn't matter because the practice he'd been doing was just can't change that this has happened now is not a safe time to worry about why that happened. It's just going into what can I do about it? Right. Focus on what I can do. Focus yeah. on what my process is. Great. Practice it. Rehearse it. And it doesn't have to be just in those performance environments because life is full of stress. Yeah. 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 And I was thinking just that, you know, we will say when you're talking about managing uncertainty, it's rather than thinking about all the variables that you can't control, it's about being able to focus down on the things that are within your control to be able to build that exit strategy from from whatever it is that, that we're yeah. I use a model with the, the athletes I work with on that terminology of it's 70 20 10 because you sometimes hear if you can't control it don't worry about it don't think about it I, I, I can agree to some extent with that but my challenge is okay it's raining outside I can't control the weather but I would like to know 
that it's raining, I can adopt my strategy off it. I'm just not going to spend a huge amount of time focusing on it. So 70% of the focus should go on what we can control. 20% should go on what we can influence and 10% should go on what we've got no control over. But often we flip that around and 70% of the focus goes on what we've got no control over. 20% stays on influence, but 10% goes on what we can control. So it's it's trying to shift the balance yeah. and really gain an understanding of, okay, what, what can you actually control? Some people think they can control the outcome, but you can't. Mm-hmm. You could run, and, and most athletes listening, or most, well, anyone listen, have you ever had an unbelievable performance and lost? Have you ever performed poorly and still won? It's happened because we've got no control over the other people, the outcome that's going on with it. So you can't control the outcome. You can influence it. You can't control it. Yeah. You can, you can only control your process to it and trying to show them, okay, well, what, what can you control? Your response, your reaction, how you manage it fundamentally you yeah that's really powerful I'm just thinking back to conversations I've been having this week with some supervisees and you know when sometimes when working with trainee therapists they'll come into supervision and they say look you know there's all of this stuff going on and I, I there's nothing that this client can do to change their that situation there's nothing I can do as a therapist to help them in that situation because their environment can't change and I just feel really helpless. So we bring it right back down to well, what, what is their goal and what are they able to influence within themselves? What have they got control over in that time? We need to acknowledge the things that they don't have control over. Absolutely. But bringing it back down to things that they can control back down to their own physical and, and mental well-being and what they can influence in terms of that. And that framing it like that really helps to increase their perception of control. And, and understanding that there is wiggle room. Like it's yeah. not that you can't think about those things. You can. It's natural. It's it's part of us that those thoughts about the things we can control will come into play. You're not going to be able to 100% of the time think about just the things we can control. So giving yourself the space to go, right, I can hit 70%. Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying to align it more within that role and teaching them acceptance that I can't control it. Yes. And again, understanding the difference between need and want. Yeah, they meant to look. I need to help them. No, you don't need to help them. You want to help them. Need intensifies. There is a do or die feeling to it. So you have that emotional response and reaction to it of intensity. You don't always get what you want, but Mm. you get the things you need. And fundamentally, when you look at that, the things that you need. The the example I try and do with that is go right. Take a deep breath and hold your breath, and for as long as you can. And those last few seconds before you're almost craving for breath. Yeah. That feeling of it, that's that's need. And you telling yourself that you need something is you living in that kind of feeling yeah. for the whole time. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's very different to I want breath. Mm. Very, very different. So it's just kind of like the language we use internally can majorly influence the emotional response we have to things and the acceptance we have to things. Because, yeah, the whole response and reaction around that how you talk to yourself, how you set it up, how you set those expectations that, again, the need and want, I want to help all my clients. I don't necessarily need to. Mm. And that's not a bad thing. It's me knowing I would do everything I can. But if it doesn't work out, I'm not going to beat myself massively up over it because some of the things are completely outside of my control. Yeah. Yeah. And again, something we, you know, we talk about in, in therapy is the, the main things that influence therapeutic outcome. 
And quite often the initial thing that people say is, oh, it's, it's the client therapist relationship is the biggest influencing factor. So it's perhaps it's the, the coach and the athlete relationship that's the beginning, biggest influential factor. But actually, you know, the, the, the research is pretty universal on this, that that's hugely important. The client therapist relationship is roughly about 30 um, percent. Yeah, if we, yeah. you know, if, if we look at Lambert's um, research into this and then we've got the model is roughly about 15 percent. And then there's hope and placebo is about 15 percent. Now, the other 40 percent is extra therapeutic factors. So all of the other things that are going on that you have absolutely no control over um, in, in that therapy space. But what you can do in that therapy space is help to get the client to understand their own needs and resources and how to meet them in a healthy way that helps them to build resilience to be able to manage those and influence those extra therapeutic factors. Does that make sense in terms of ah, the work that you you do in sport? hundred percent. Like everything you do beyond that and like even on the help side sometimes they mightn't want help they're, they're coming to it but they mightn't want it so even though I'm doing everything I can the bit I say about beat myself up by it if I don't get that outcome in my head that that mightn't be necessarily my fault there's lots of other factors that come into it I'm doing everything I can around that but again I can't control people no Joe Griffin would always say you know have you got a customer for change in the room because if you haven't your work's not going anywhere you know 100% and like the, the thing we talk a lot about within sport because we're dealing with lots of other components like coaches the support staff the player is who's the client who's the client you're dealing with in this scenario because you often get told well the coach thinks it's this and this person thinks it's that and you think it's that and then you actually speak to the athlete and it's something different and then okay who's your client is the client the athlete or the organization that's paying you because they may say look it's this so for example I've I've had it before where a coach has asked me, should this person play? And I'm going, that's not my decision. I'm not a coach. I'm not involved in that. But I know you've been doing some work with them. That's irrelevant because I'm not, that's not my role. And if yeah. obviously some individuals, you could be under the pressure, well, they're the ones paying me. So are they my client or is my athlete the client? And those yeah. things can suddenly then link so around. Ethical boundaries can become quite blurred. Oh, How yeah. do you manage that? really asking your question like who, who is who is the client what yeah. is the aspect and, and and really being mindful of the decision making process that goes into it so for example if I did disclose to the coach whether I think not disclosing what me and the, the individual yeah. says what what it could mean is I've now broken trust with the player and the rest of the players go well hold on a minute this person went to see Phil and now they're out of the now the rest of the team and I know that they've spoken or the coach goes well look I've spoken with Phil and we think we're gonna sit you out on this one I've got no right over that I'm not I'm not a coach in that that field so my job isn't to say whether they should play or not my job is to best equip the the athletes themselves to be able to manage those situations and and, and those scenarios so yeah trying to think about what is the first second third order consequences of of my actions and something that got said to me a while ago by a very experienced practitioner was does the decision need to be made now because sometimes we make that instinctive movement yes. and we're thinking we're helping and it's asking yourself look if I did nothing for 24 hours would anything change and if the answer is no then that possibly means you've got time to think about what is the implications and what's the right thing mm. and again that thing who's the client 
yeah. Who, who is the client when you ask yourself that when you're working in multidisciplinary setups it allows you to get real clarity about where you sit within that and also an understanding that since since that early experience I know whenever I'm kind of being brought in to work with a team I'm very clear on where I sit where my where my process is what they can expect from me what success for my role is yeah. sometimes it's like right bring a psych in they're going to change their performances around and it's like I'm not a motivational speaker <laughs> and, and even so you might even if you do find some motivation what I say it's not going to necessarily fix all the problems in one session your brain is a muscle it needs to be trained and worked on so yeah those kind of fundamental factors yeah so so managing people's expectations from the outset really really important you know clarifying your role and your responsibilities and the boundaries within which you'll be working yeah 100 100 because you know people's perspectives of what a psychologist can be and the impact they might expect that they're going to see a huge change after one session which which i've had with, with young athletes and the parent will go right you've had one session with them and we're still seeing the same problem and i'm like exactly i've had one session with them i've, I've had an, an intake interview with, with the individual <laughs> like it's 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 manage management of those those expectations is key and Sometimes, as you probably know, within the, the therapy space, people's perspectives and perceptions of what therapy entails, a lot of it comes from, from the movies and Hollywood. That, and I still get it, even though I'm in the sports space, that they think I'm going to have a couch in my room. I'm going to get them to come in and lie down and tell, OK, tell me about your parents. That's almost <laughs> that expectation of where of where it's going to go. And it's like, oh, it's just a conversation. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's all it is. We're just going to have a conversation. And yeah. and it's it's kind of safe. Yes, we might get into some some deeper level talks, and, and that's okay. But we're not going to dive. I'm not going to take you to the deep end and chuck you in straight away. We'll we'll, we'll build to that. And yeah, yeah. I rambled a bit there. So <laughs> no, 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 it's fantastic. It's because it's so much. You know, we we work in different arenas, and we we you know we we've arrived at where we are in you know different routes. But actually, there's so many so much overlap in the way that you work and and the human givens approach. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, our listeners are able to really, you know, re- reflect and, and, and see and draw out all of the things that you're saying and be able to, you know, overlay the, the HG lens to it really and see that there's so many parallels in, in the work. You, you're dealing with people. That's fundamentally, absolutely. regardless yeah. of the context, the performance. All That's... got the same physical and emotional needs and are all born with the same resources. And you talked about the importance of language. And I think, you know, if, if we've got time, that's something I'd like to come back to, but the you know the importance of language as a as an influencing factor in outcomes what else do you see as barriers if you like to to people being able to access their resources and meet their needs yeah i think expectations are a big one you know some of some of the research i'm doing at the moment is around trying to look at ways we can help athletes in performance settings almost engage in help seeking behavior so when we're struggling, that's really difficult. That unfortunately in sport, it might not be until they're almost that breaking point that they want to, to actually engage in that support. So some of the quotes there, so we had a paper published late last year that you had players talking about the only reason that they went to engage in that support is because they broke down in the training center and were just in tears. And this is in rugby. So you're talking about a, you obviously can't see me, but in inverted <laughs> commas, a masculine sport where we, we don't necessarily want to showcase that. And but it's the opposite. You're, you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with people, you 
there is no such thing as a kind of okay this person should not hold this this person we all have feelings and emotions yeah. and, and, and they, they come out and, and they manifest in different ways in terms of how when we get to that breaking point how it can kind of come out but it's about trying to one break the stigma that it's okay to not be okay that's normal like if you think about your career to date so far how many if you had to put a percentage of how many days and even joe yourself in your career and i know in my career how many days have i woken up and been 100 <laughs> percent? i would say i'm i'm on the less than one percent of my career to date where i have woken up feeling perfect yeah yeah that's that's the that's the measuring stick we feel like we should be every day and so mm-hmm. understanding that yes it's okay to not be okay but then the second part is if we're not okay we don't necessarily have to settle for that that shouldn't just be it is there support we can do to help the way i almost look at it is minimize the lower ones so if we're thinking about the metric of zero and ten yes we're trying to be seven eight nine mm-hmm. most of the time but if we can minimize the amount of times we're down at one two three and increase that then surely that's a useful thing to be engaging in 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 terms of where we seek support so yes it's okay for us to be down at one two three but that doesn't mean that we have to be there by ourselves and the support we can access around that so i guess one of the challenges in sport is a real understanding around what one two three looks like what it feels like mm-hmm. and being able to know what support structure is available to them that they can they can engage in and the, the stuff we're doing at the moment is 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 looking at within within the teams themselves using the language around mental health and developing their mental health literacy skills mm-hmm. that they can help facilitate each other so instead of going okay i've noticed one of my teammates is a bit down here i'm not going to avoid him i'm going to go over and have a conversation can can we foster that environment where people are looking out for each other where it's like look it's all right mate yeah I'm I'm here if you need to talk and then you can almost be the vehicle that helps bring them towards that support because this is just my personal opinion is that that is probably one of the hardest things a human being can do is ask for help particularly when they're in a performance setting where it's like I've had all this training I've I should have the ability to perform mm-hmm. and yet and yet I feel like I've got nothing mm-hmm. that's a really really hard place to be in so sometimes as human beings we it's not just on them themselves to make that decision. That's one of the hardest things to do. So is there something we could do to help bring them along on that? So yeah, that's, I guess, I don't know if that quite answers your question, Joe. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking that, you know, from how that kind of fits into the our model, really. So we would say that there are three reasons why people would suffer from mental ill health. So three barriers, if you like, to people being yeah, yeah. needs. And the first one being that the the environment very much, you know, that the, the environment is sick or they're in a toxic environment and that could be influenced by people around them. That might be a poor sense of safety and security in, in where they are. So whatever that environment is, and we can get, um, you know, we can use the word environment in quite a broad term. Yeah. And the, the second one being that there are missing coping skills. So perhaps we haven't learned how to understand our, our needs and, and emotions and, and instincts and how all of that works. And so is there a way that we can teach people to be able to, to do that? And the third one being that perhaps there's disruption to what we would call the internal guidance system. So the way that we engage with the world to be able to meet our needs, and, and that can be many things. It can be things such as trauma, conditioning, injury, genetic influence as well. So 
if we can really think about those three barriers and what we can be doing to help people to overcome those barriers in whatever context that is for them, then they're going to be more likely to be able to meet their physical and emotional needs in balance. The, the only one I'd add as an additional one, not that it's not included within those three, but more just as a highlight of its importance within that yeah. is, is the support structure that yeah. we find ourselves in. And that that could fall within the resources, the coping resources yeah. we have. It could fall within within the environment. Yeah. But equally, I think it's it's important to stand as a standalone that we are we are social creatures. We yeah. don't work well in isolation. Yes, individuals may like being they'd be more introverted, they like that aspect, but they also we crave that connection when we've gone too long without it. So everyone almost has that cup of. So I know um, there'll be individuals who they might go to social gatherings and they'll they'll uh, they have that social social hangover the next day because of actually engaging with lots of people. Okay, but there's still that need that we have that capacity of that engagement that is important for what we do and for our development, our both cognitive, emotional development, the, the professional, personal development. Mm. So I do think as a standalone in itself, because the environment could just be the performance environment that you're in, the expectations of the hierarchy, the structures, all of those aspects. But fundamentally, even if that environment itself is not great, it's amazing when you're working with teams, how great when you create a really strong, supportive unit, it can help individuals with the coping of that environment. Mm. It doesn't make the environment right, but we can't necessarily change or control some of those things. and those inherent things can take time to change within the environment. So that would be my only, not addition, but I, I'd, I'd almost take it out as its standalone component because I do think it's so, it's so important that in everything we do that we talk about the importance of talking. But it's, yes, journaling and, and things like that, getting it out. But when you talk with other people and they validate your experience or validate your, your, your response, that's the bit that's really powerful. So yeah. that connection bit is so, so important for me, yeah. that understanding that social bubble. Totally. I think, you know, what you talk about is that biopsychosocio model of, of well-being. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that Gareth and I did in universities. Uh, he created this model, this performance model, and it was it was to do with academic performance, but actually you could remove the word academic and it was applicable in anything. And we'd got, you know, it was influenced um, and it was, you know, multidirectional. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know the, the the physical needs the the you know psychological needs but also the social well-being yeah. factor as well and and so it was this 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 triangle feeding into the performance in the middle and all of those you know so your your performance can influence the others as well as you know the yeah. others influencing the performance so absolutely totally hear what you're saying with that one yeah yeah that's fascinating i love it and but in, in, like there's so much you can learn from other performance domains it's one of the reasons why i love working in the other ones because again, you're dealing with people, you're dealing with context, and you're dealing with performance. Mm. Fundamentally, at the heart of it is, is a person. And we, we have a good idea of what people need to perform. So how, I was going to talk about that, actually. How do you, you know, I know that um, some of your research has been on understanding the predictors. How do you, can you tell me a bit more about that? How do you, you know, how do you know what, when somebody's more likely to struggle? Yeah, good question. So I guess from, from an academic perspective or a, a with, with my research hat on we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're trying to look at some of the fundamental traits and trying to understand the relationship that those traits have with certain performance environments mm -hmm. so i looked at more fine motor skills 
So the likes of golf, darts, archery, where there's a real element of precision required. So, and that would, that would have a huge implication on the outcome. And a lot of those sports are self-paced. So there's almost a conscious decision in when you execute that move. Whereas other sports, if you think of maybe football or rugby, where it's kind of very instinctive. So I may throw a bad pass, doesn't necessarily mean that the performance outcome is going to go down because of it. So what we tried to look at was some of the key aspects that could influence that decision-making aspect and trying to see if we could predict those individuals who are more likely to experience choking uh, or more likely to experience there's a the main area of my research is on a phenomenon called the yips where it's kind of a psychoneuromuscular impediment that stops us from being able to perform so you may have seen it darts players who can't release the dart an elite level golfer who they're putting all the time suddenly they're gripping the the putter too hard and it's jerking and shaking and trying to understand what potentially influences individuals who experience that. And one one of the main things that came out for us was around perfectionistic self-presentation, where it's very much around, I don't want to show you my, my weaknesses. I don't want to tell you my weaknesses and I have to present this perfect image. And particularly when you're in those moments where there's a performance outcome element to it but there's also a level of I'm being seen here and I can't be seen to make a mistake and because that decision making it de-automatizes your natural movements Mm. because if you think about I'm sure parents if you've got parents here or or you yourself were taught to drive by your your parent it's a really stressful thing why because it's a very driving is very automatic like it is walking for people so when you ask to break down how to drive they struggle they struggle massively with it because they, they look at it at a very higher level. When, you, when you're learning something, it's a very much slower thing. And when we try to do that in a, when we have an automatic movement, it becomes uncoordinated. Okay. So that is why there's that real challenge point. So trying to look at those psychological traits that may cause that interference and cause that breakdown in performance and definitely perfectionistic self-presentation is one of them. So in terms of how, how we look at it from a research side, it's it's again looking at that and testing it in different performance domains to see if its accuracy holds true. Um, but then in the practical side, it's like working as a practitioner in the space, it's trying to use almost triangulation in my methods for my needs analysis. So not just relying on one piece of information to inform my decision on it, trying to see if I can see multiple modes of things that can influence that decision making. Because we can very easily make assumptions based off what we see but we want to almost reaffirm it by what we're hearing and and what's actually being presented so I don't know if that quite answers your question Joe. Yeah absolutely and I'm I'm sure if there are any of our trainees listening they'll be able to pick out some of the maxims of psychological influence um, as we call them in our human givens manual you've been talking about there. I might test you on it later any supervisees of mine who may be listening. Um, Yeah absolutely fascinating stuff so how do you help people overcome any of these these things that they're they're experiencing? How do you help people? Good question. For me, fundamentally, and, and again, this this sits from I guess my my philosophical approach, my values as a practitioner, is I very much support the person behind the performer. So I want to really understand them, the challenges that they're facing, and and really understand them as people. 
because when you support people you support my view is you support the, the better version of a performer you're helping them to be better performers because almost if you think about it we take our baggage with us and i don't necessarily mean baggage in the sense of all our challenges but if, if i go into a into my work and my son's in hospital sick i'm not going to be working at the best of my capacity because me as a person has challenges going on so it's about holistically supporting that individual when it comes to actual performance performance issues it's really just getting them to understand what their definition of success and failure is because there's so much variation in what's understood by that and you start to understand some of the expectations people place on themselves the expectations that they they perceive others are placing on them and really trying to seek evidence of that fact and very much using it like that so is that a fact have you heard someone say that or is that just you you're perceiving that based on body language or what you're seeing or or, or that and really trying to to understand that where they're getting the evidence for why they think their performance is breaking down and then what once we kind of get to some of those some of those aspects trying to really create a more healthy way of viewing it a more helpful way of viewing it and also then really trying to give them mental processes that that allow them to have a routine that can be consistent that they know they can fall back into that they know if they start to waver slightly they've got something they're able to grab on and bring them back onto onto a more even keel and there's no unfortunate golden blueprint of what's going to work for everyone it, it is a very personal aspect so it's really helping them to navigate what that's going to look like what if we're going to use cues what cues are going to hit and have the same effect if we're going to be using imagery or breathing or some might sit with mindfulness so nice one could be okay do we want to get really present focus when there's lots of noise going on that's going to bring us we don't need to listen to it but we can't get rid of it so let's bring it down or do we want to challenge the thoughts and go with more of a maybe a cbt rebt approach of challenge uh, challenge our thoughts challenge our beliefs and again you only really know that by getting to know the person their yeah. appraisal of the situation and the demand itself so i don't know if i've given a core specific just do this because it's it's not that simple no absolutely you know it's so important to to listen to the individual story mm. is and and the language that the individual is using themselves and how you as part of that support network can help them to perhaps reframe and rephrase some of the way that they're speaking to themselves and to help shape that story slightly differently for them and is there is there any work I mean I, I did say I just wanted to touch briefly you know because we're, we're close to time now but is there any work involved in the way language is used in the sector um, I know this is something I was speaking to somebody the other day in the world of dance who's very keen to to educate people in the world of dance about the importance of language is that something that's that's going on in sports as well yeah definitely definitely I know from an overview this win at all costs mentality mm -hmm. that was in sport definitely had a lot of ramifications in terms of mental health and the implications of that and that is the language of it yeah. and language pertaining that maybe that's in actions of coaches but also in the expectation setting that we need to win at all costs that that comes at a do or die element to it so in terms of within the sector of sport it is really trying to understand that in any competition like if you think of any sport you compete and I do this with my young athletes actually the session during the week and I ask them okay when you turn up the competitions how many people are there and they'd go there might be 20 in a league or there might be 200 
And I was like, so who, who walks away with a gold medal? One person. Does that mean the other 399 or, or nine are unsuccessful? Does that mean that they've, they've failed? Fundamentally, no. Mm. But it's then that understanding of the language we use to ourselves, the whether it's the restrictive language as I should, have to, need to. We know that's not helpful because it restricts you in a box that there's only one outcome that's viewed as success. So understanding the relationship that we have and the language we use around success, failure, fundamentally is a really useful starting block. And well, what is the definition of success? <laughs> what, are the, what is the definition of success that you feel is required from you within your sport that's required from you from your parents because i would say in youth sport that's the majority of the problem we face is or the biggest thing that athletes i know will say is the biggest source of pressure is i want to feel that the money my parents have spent and the time my parents have given up has been worthwhile and then when you speak to the parents they're often i don't care as long as they're having fun yeah. so the language isn't translating there no. so so those types of things are really again really important so from a organizational level, the win at all costs thing and the language and how that's presented and how you communicate expectations, massive. But then within the individuals themselves or the teams, again, how those values, how those expectations, how those understanding of what success looks like mm. definitely need to be verbalized. They need to be articulated from the individuals, but also within the support staff to know what we expect in here. Is that mm. realistic? Is that fair? Because sometimes those are the biggest barriers athletes face because it's like, okay, are you someone who enjoys competing when you've got no expectation? That's different to when the target's on your back and you've just won and everyone's coming for your spot. And again, being able to verbalize and understand the language individuals say to themselves around yeah. that is so important. So um, important. I, I think, you know, the language as well is changing the, the way that language is used in sport is going to go a long way as well to help break down the, the stigma that there is around mental health in sport as well. And I know so much has been done in more recent years, so many amazing athletes coming forward and talking about their own experiences of, of mental health, which has been so hugely, hugely helpful. But yeah. I think, you know, rather than waiting until somebody's had this horrific experience to the point where they've made a documentary about their horrific experience, if we can start to influence that from the beginnings, from when our children are going into cricket clubs and football clubs or athletics, whatever it is, if that can begin at that level with the way mm. that we... The last, the last Olympics, the last Olympics really set that up with Simone Biles when she, when she yes. came out and said, I'm not competing because of the impact on my mental health. And the, the research I'm taking part of in Ireland, the met the, so it's with, with, with rugby, they've got an amazing campaign called Tackle Your Feelings. Yeah. And that's such a powerful thing because the tackle right. component of rugby, yeah, the that side. So yeah, yeah. The thing I would say to everyone is don't underestimate the the power of language. And a simple word like should, need can change the whole perspective of how that's perceived and how that's viewed. And just talking more about using the term mental health, my mental well-being, my emotional well-being yeah. normalizes it. Because we're yeah. normal, we're human beings, we all feel it. So let's talk about it. It's not something that just impacts 5% of the population. Mental health is not, there's no bigotry in it. There's no sexism in it. There's no racism in it. We're human beings. We experience all of it. We experience these feelings. We experience in all those aspects that, so let's talk about it. And so we have. And thank you, <laughs> Phil. Amazing, amazing. 
Um, is there anything else at all that you know that you'd particularly like to add today? Ed, the, the only thing I would say, just from my own experience, because I know you are in the the mental health counselling space or psychotherapy space, is learn from other professions, because yeah. all other professions, one of the things I love. I work with health psychs, I've worked with clinical psychs, I've worked with psychotherapists, I've worked with uh, forensic psychs, organizational psychs. They're all dealing with people so I can learn from it. So don't restrict yourself too much with just learning from my sector. Yeah. But, but learn from anyone who works with people. There's learning to be had. So, so yeah, just from a, a development point, reach out. You might think, oh, he's a sports psychologist. That's got nothing to do with me. Hopefully you've learned from today. Oh, actually, yeah, they're dealing with people. So they're dealing with challenge. They're dealing with pressure. Okay, there's a lot of crossover. And, and learning from those other, other disciplines is uh, within psychology has been hugely powerful for my own development as a practitioner, as a researcher, as a lecturer, but also as a person. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think absolutely, you know, Gareth and I would back you up totally on that, you know, read across a broader scope rather than just in, in, in your area. And, and listen listen to podcasts like this one <laughs> <laughs> Bill thank you so much for joining us today your insights um, that you've shared no doubt will help a lot of people you know listening to this podcast and and sharing it beyond across a broader scope rather than just in in, in your area and, and listen listen to podcasts like this one <laughs> <laughs> Bill thank you so much for joining us today your insights um, that you've shared no doubt will help a lot of people you know, listening to this podcast and, and sharing it beyond. If you would like to explore the Human Givens approach and the training we offer, you can find out more by visiting our website. And you can find the link for that in the podcast description, where you'll also find the links for many of the resources mentioned in this episode, as well as our podcast archive. We've been lucky enough to speak to so many interesting people on the Good Mental Health podcast and on such a wide range of topics. But if there's something that you would like us to cover, please do let us know. And of course, if you enjoyed listening today, please like, comment and share. But for now, thank you to everyone for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>